Kurt Alexander, a.k.a. Big Boy, is the guest today. I'm just so grateful for people that come on, grads who come on and tell their story, share their childhood and their present day life, talk about their process and life after the process. What a gift this conversation is. And Kurt's in radio, so you'll hear his beautiful radio voice and all the great radio verbiage he brings to this conversation. Rarely do I talk to people who are in the same field, the podcasting radio world. So enjoy this episode with Kurt Alexander. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates of the process and have a conversation with them about how their work in the process is informing their life outside of the process, how their spirit and how their love are living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. Kurt Alexander, a.k.a. Big Boy, is with us. Welcome, Big Boy. Thank you for the welcome, Drew. How you doing, my man? I'm doing great. How are you? You know, I'm good. I'm good, man. Good day. You know, I'm in a a good place, so I'm good. You're ready for this conversation. Yeah. You know what? I wouldn't be here if I I wasn't ready. Now, if, you know, we were planning to try to do this before. And, you know, and I told you then, I said, man, you know what? I don't think I'm ready for that. And here we are today. Yeah. So this is your field. You're the guy usually asking the questions, host of Big Boy's Neighborhood. You have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. You've been in movies and TV shows. Your Big Boy's Neighborhood is nationally syndicated across the nation, and you've been in this business for almost three decades. Is that right? Yeah. I'm coming up on year 29 in like, uh, I think May, May, July. May and July is my first actual contract that I got for radio. Supposed to have been one night, and I stretched it. What? (laughs) You mean your first contract was for one night? It wasn't even a contract. It was just more of a, would you like to try radio? And they were like, we'll, you know, come in, try it for one night and we'll pay you $35 an hour for four hours. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I'll go in and make, you know, this $35 for four hours. And that was going to be my radio career. And, you know, I stretched it into almost 30 years now. I imagine you have had some great conversations. A lot of your stuff is up on YouTube and now you, you film and video most of it, but What's it like to be the guy asking the questions, bringing in great guests to converse with? You know, it, it's good because when I do an interview, it's not just, uh, you know, the new album and who produced it, the new movie. How was it working with such and such? And we get into real conversations. You know, I have fun and we have, you know, it's light, but we get into real conversations as well. And what I, f- I find myself, I find myself doing a lot is having conversations where not only am I talking to that person, but I'm talking to, I'm talking to me. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I, I can never give someone some kind of advice or speak with anyone without saying, well, you know what? You need to subscribe to that. You know, you need. To. So when I'm having these conversations, it's, it's about them. 
but we get this one either a common ground, common accord, or we're just kind of just speaking with each other. And I think that makes the best dialogue. It's not about the product. You know, it's about the person. Beautiful. You so so you're in there as well, learning, growing, using yourself. Oh yeah. So you know, in your intro, we didn't even talk about your autobiography. What's the name of it? Big Boys. Yeah, it's called uh, Big Boy and XL Life. Staying big at half the size. Uh, big boy, an XL life, staying big at half the size, which has sold lots of copies and is very popular, lots of reviews, good stuff. And so let's go there. There's, I'm so excited for this conversation. Take us to your childhood and the emergence of big boy. What was it like for you growing up? Can you share a little bit of context of your early life as a, as a little guy? Oh, definitely. I'm one of seven. I'm the sixth born. I have a baby sister by the name of Nicole. But yeah, it was, you know, my mom, Ida, beautiful person and single parent. And when I say single parent, I mean, totally single. You know, I, there wasn't a time that I could remember like, oh, you know, my dad or my dad was there, a, a voice, a, a image, a smell. So just growing up, it was always us. I don't have like cousins. I have one uncle, but it wasn't like I or we weren't close to him. So when we say the Alexander family, the Alexander unit, that was just us. It was us eight. You know, it was my mom and, and seven kids. And, you know, of course, with a, a single parent, only one that's kind of bringing in money into the household, you did have a lot of, you know, there wasn't a thing called extra money. It was like, you know, you just kind of live paycheck to paycheck. And it, it wasn't a lot of extras, even though at the time I didn't know how so-called broke we were or how, you know, what our fa financial groundings and standings were because what we didn't have in money, I always felt that we were so affluent, so rich in love, you know, with hugs and I love yous. And my mom was very emotional. So growing up, we did have a household full of love, of love. It was just the materialistic things. They weren't there. We went through some bouts of homelessness. But um, as far as growing up, you know, it wasn't what you have now. You know, everybody didn't have a thousand streams and 500 satellite channels and, you know, multiple things that could take you away. We entertained ourselves. You know, I would put on talent shows in the house. I was always the kid that was, uh, that was talented. I knew that I wanted to do something. I always told my mom that I was going to be famous, you know, and I said that from early as, as kindergarten, five years of age, I knew it. And so you became a bit of the entertainer given there wasn't that kind of rampant social media and channels to choose from. It was, it was the big boy channel. Yeah. It was like, you know, it, it was me. It was me, the entertainer. It was me singing and dancing and telling jokes. And, you know, and I think that was like a lot of my tuition into the school of experience for what I do now. And are there, were there moments that, that stand out for you that were particularly painful around poverty? You know, when you're going through it, not as much, you know, because you see your peers are pretty much doing the same thing. And, and I didn't see a lot of 
things that kind of drew me into a different direction where it was like, oh, but such and such has this and I don't. It, you know, of course, it was times when if you wanted a certain kind of shoe, you didn't get that kind of shoe. You didn't, you went to JC Penney's and you got, you know, winners instead of Converse. You know what I'm saying? And a lot of meals are at home. It, it wasn't like when you look back at it now in your rearview mirror, you do kind of see a lot of things that you grew up without. But at the moment, it wasn't times where I was like, I can't believe that you know, we're broke or I can't believe this. You know, it was just the, as, as a kid, that's just how, how you rolled with it. And so how did the name Big Boy emerge and share a little bit about, I guess you shared on the role of being the entertainer, but when did that nickname first come to you? Well, Big Boy came about when I was about 15 years of age. There was a gentleman by the name of Augie Johnson, rest in peace. And Augie Johnson was in a a group called Side Effect. And Augie would always tell me, Drew, he would say, man, man, you know, bro, you're going to be a star. You're going to be a star. You're going to be a star. And I didn't have a dad that said, you're going to be a star. And I never looked at Augie as a father figure because I didn't put people in that position. But once I went to Hoffman and once I started doing the work, I was like, damn, yeah, Aug was like a dad to me. He was a father figure to me. He believed in me. My mom believed in me as well, but I never had someone outside of my household that believed so much. Friends, buddies, everybody was like, oh, Kurt, you're going to do all right. Kurt, 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 you're going to be fine. But this was a guy that took an interest in me. And he would always tell me like, hey, man, you're going to be a star. You're going to be a star. So at that time, I had a different rap name, a different DJ name because I would I did like mobile disc jockey and you know the two turntables the mixer and things of that nature, and so I got this project through um, Augie Johnson, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with a radio personality as well by the name of Rick Dees. Augie worked with Rick Dees, so we got this project that we were doing with Rick Dees. But Augie would always tell me like, man, we we need to record a record on you. You need to do this. You need to be an actor, and so he said, man. We need to start calling you big boy. And I'm thinking like big boy, you know what I'm saying? Like why big boy? And he was like, when someone walk into a room, you want them to know exactly who you are, brother. When they walk in the room, you want them to know exactly who you are. And so he just started calling me big boy. And when I did the project, I did the project under Kurt big boy, Alexander. So big boy has been there since I was 15 years of age. I imagine that you took that on and it was in reference to your personality, to your size, you, you write a book about an XL life. There's a part of you that really claimed this and stepped into this. Is that true? What was that like? Oh, yeah. I was, I was big boy proud. I was, you know, that, that was me. I was, the, I was the big guy. I was, you know, and big boy, <laughs> it was like big boy got Big and big and big and big and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And anybody that follow my story, which we'll we'll share today, you know, then it got to pretty much the biggest boy. You know, I really kind of became this big boy person. And it started from this 15-year-old doing a project with Rick D's, 15, 16 years of age, and you know, DJing and doing mobile parties to, you know fast forward into radio and then the big boy thing just kind of took off and i felt like that was always me 
And to this day, I'm still big boy, even though I've lost 300 pounds. But big boy has always been me. And it's always been something that I felt like it was empowering to me until I went and did a lot of work on me as well. And I don't run from big boy, but I also had to understand that at one point, you know, like, man, were you as happy as you said or thought you were? And that was a lot of the work that I did, you know, with the process as well. Yeah. So let's, let's go there. So big boy heads into the process, only you're called Kurt, right? Because that's your childhood name. Why did you take the process? What was the pain point that brought you to the work? You know, it was, you know, for one thing, you get so comfortable in your skin. Sometimes you, you, you tell yourself you don't need the work. But I started to peel off these layers. When I first wrote my book, I peeled off layers. And I thought I peeled off layers where I was like, oh, my God, I'm saying a whole lot. And so whenever you arrive, you kind of arrive. Like when my mom passed away at the age of 57, I didn't get my health together. It was one of those things where everything is not like an instant light switch. With me, I always call it a dimmer. And so with me, it was more of that dimmer started to light up whatever it is, not the room, but lighting up Kurt, lighting up big boy, putting this light on where I'm starting to see certain things. And I'm like, okay, you know what? You can't handle all this by yourself. Everything is not so-called okay, you know? And so I was already kind of like looking and, you know, doing small bits of therapy and, and talking to myself and doing writings. And one day, man, I just had a meeting with, with Scooter, with Scooter Braun. And I took some guys over there from Japan to meet with him about some business venture. It wasn't even about me and working on me. If you know Scooter, Scooter doesn't waste any time doing business. He did the business and we just started talking and he was talking about his life and I've known Scooter for years. So Scooter started speaking on his life and where he's at. So on and so forth, he started bringing up Hoffman Institute the process, and he doesn't understand what he's striking in me. He couldn't have known how much attention I was paying to his words and his dialogue and his mannerisms and his face and the way his eyes looked. And he just looked so clear. And it wasn't about Scooter that, you know, Taylor Swift and, and Justin Bieber and Usher. It wasn't about that. It wasn't about this professional guy with all these accolades. He looked happy as Scott. And that's what brought me into this conversation even more so. So I was like, man, I got to go. I got to go. I didn't have to think on it hard because you just drew. You just know when something is good for your soul. And I felt like I need that. So I started, you know, doing some research. I kept in touch with Scooter. I, you know, went through the necessary, you know, channels in the process of doing the process. And it was something that I just felt like I had to do. And it's crazy too, Drew, because sometimes you don't want to meet yourself. It was times when I was filling out the, you know, just the application and the, it, just everything where there were times when I would have to stop and back away from the questionnaire and do it. And I was like, oh my God, you know, what's on the next page? That idea 
that sometimes you don't really want to actually even meet yourself. And that homework, the pre-work you were doing, sounds like it was forcing a meeting between you and you that was hard to take. Yeah. You know, because I'm the happy guy. And not that I'm sad or depressed, but I'm the happy guy. You know what I'm saying? And, and I think what we do a lot is we send the representative. And for Hoffman Institute in the process, I couldn't send the representative. Say a little bit more about that, Kurt, because I think you're on to something. This is really good because I think all of us on some level send that representative. Tell us about your representative as it relates to who you really are. You know, my representative is Kurt. It's big boy. It's the the funny guy. It's the everything is going to be all right. You know, it's the everybody has problems, but I don't want to put my problems on you. It's like when you when someone goes to anything, your first date and your few dates, your first job and working somewhere, you send this person in that's like, oh, my God, this this person is amazing. And then you start. After a while, you start seeing the flaws or you start seeing, you know, character traits and things of that nature that you didn't see before because the representative was there making sure that everything was pristine, that everything was fine. You know, almost almost exhausting to send this representative in. So what I meant by that is when I'm doing the pre-work, I'm like, okay, I've never went this deep. I've never had this conversation. I've never been so-called, and not forced for lack of a better word, but I've never had to come to the realization of pulling my mom off this pedestal that I've had my mom on. You know, so it was a lot that was going on. What's the next, what's the next page? What are these patterns that I have? You know, so doing that pre-work, I was like, if this is just the pre-work, what is the work? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, oh my God. But I just knew that. And, and, and to keep it real with you too, Drew, there were times when I was like, am I ready for this? You know, am I really going to go do this? And not questioning that I would pull myself out of it, but it was just like, are you ready for this? Now, five years ago, definitely wasn't ready for it. I was ready at that moment. You know, when I went into the process last July, July of 2022, I was ready. So let me ask you a question. What do you think was different for you five years ago versus July of 2022? You know, what? I think that, you know, and it's not just with age and wisdom and being wiser because there's, you know, there's some dumbasses that's that's the same age as I am. But it was just. It's like your graduation walk, you know, or it's like, okay, it's like school. If I go to first grade, the next thing is second, third, fourth, fifth, on and on. And I just felt like five years ago, I wasn't prepared for it because my representative was extremely huge at that time. My layers were layered upon layered upon layered, you know, so I wasn't ready to not only talk to anyone about it. I wasn't ready for me to talk to myself about growing up in obesity and happiness and, you know, your addiction to food that I didn't know I had and daddy issues that I didn't know I had. So five years ago, I was fine, you know, either fine or frightened. It was one of those F words. I was fine or frightened. 
But when it came down to doing the process last year of 2022 in July, it was just one of those things that I just, I just knew that I couldn't go on without this work. I knew that I could not, and I knew that it was, it was time for me to take this, this pivot. So Kurt, take us to your process because all that stuff is beginning to, to fall away. All those old understandings, those old stories, those old patterns. Take us to your process. What was that like for you to navigate all this change and learning that was happening so intensely during your process? You know, when, when I did the pre-work and when I was on my way driving up to the process, I didn't know as far as getting to Hoffman, how I was going to come out of there because I've never shared that much with anyone, let alone a group of so-called strangers who are now like, man, that's like my family now. But just getting there and feeling the nature, the staff that was beautiful and everyone was there because something brought them there. Everybody had their own situation, problem, agenda, demons, whatever it was. Everyone had their own. And day one, you just don't know what's happening day one. You know, there's literally times that, you know, Drew, you'll go to breakfast and you'll come back and the room is set different. You're like, wait, what the hell is going on now? And I remember speaking with you one day and it was a surrender and submit where we, we learned the difference between that, you know, and if I, am, am I saying that correct, Drew? You are surrender and submission. It's great that you still remember that. What impact did it have on you? You know what? It was more so where you just like, you know what? Just do it. Do the work. Don't worry about what you look like. And there's going to be so many people that's going to Hoffman and doing the process that I don't want to take a lot of people into the room because I didn't have that. A lot of things came to me as a surprise, but there's just times where you just got to say, do it, man, do it. You know what I'm saying? Hit the pillow, do this, do that. You know? And I just said, you know what? You're here for this and you'll be discounting yourself if you didn't put it all in. And I'm telling you, man, I, I felt like I put it all in and there's nothing that I could say when I drove off of that that hill that I was like, man, I wish I would have. All, only thing I did, man, was it just made me want to continue this, uh, this journey that I'm on now. Beautiful. So is there a moment in time in your process where as you now look back some six, seven, eight months later that you can remember? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. True. Yes, man. Like, for one, I always knew everyone knows, knows their patterns. And, you know, my patterns, I mean, I have many, but, you know, procrastination, being an enabler, you know, just just a lot. And so going in, I was able to write down loads of patterns that I have. I, ha I deal with patterns every day. I've put patterns on my kids that I that I know I've put on my kids. But it was crazy, man, because when I did the process at Hoffman. 
you think that you're ahead. Like, okay, I got this. I got that. I'm doing fine. My mom was great. I'm not really tripping off of my dad. My dad wasn't there. So I was, let me deal with this. But the daddy issues, oh, I don't have daddy issues. Never thought I did. Until as a 52-year-old man or 51 at the time, I'm sitting there and we're doing an, an assignment. And this assignment has to do with your, you know, for me, it was my mom. It was, you know, my dad. And I never said all oh, sperm donor. I, you know, I didn't have those kind of hangups because remember, I didn't have daddy issues. My mom did an amazing job with raising Kurt Alexander into a man. So I didn't have, oh, my dad wasn't there. I didn't have, I didn't have anger like that, Drew. I didn't have, we were homeless because you weren't here. You weren't this, you weren't that. My mom didn't speak bad about my dad. So I didn't have daddy issues until I went to Hoffman and I learned what my patterns are and what kind of daddy issues I really had. And I remember, Drew, we were doing an exercise. And in this exercise, we had to write a certain amount of things down, so on and so forth. And those that have been to the, through the process, they know. And so I had to write a certain amount, a number of things for my mom. Hard, but easier to do, you know? And then um, you told me, you said, take, you know, take a certain amount of cards for your mom and a certain amount of cards for your dad. And so I took my mom. The a certain amount. And you were like, oh, you know, take some for your dad. And I was like, well, I don't know my dad. I don't know about my dad. I have nothing to write about my dad. And you said, take the ones for your dad. And so I'm sitting here and I'm writing my mom out and I get to my dad and I'm like, I don't have anything that I, I don't know this man. I don't have no patterns or issues or hate and this, that, and the other. I'm not going to play like I'm going to write something just to get past these index cards. And at one point you came and you sat with me, Drew. And we had a brief conversation. And I just started writing. And I was like, oh my God. I do have daddy issues. I do have certain patterns from my dad. And when I say patterns from my dad, Drew, and to everyone that's listening, I'm not talking about patterns where you say, oh, that's from your dad. But then when I realize I have a son now, right? And I notice by the way I parent my daughter and my son, when my son, I had to teach my son how to stand up and urinate because my dad didn't teach me that. I have to be the guy that tells my son this, that, and the third, and my daughter, because my dad didn't tell me that. I sometimes overparent, overgive in the pattern of enabler because I didn't receive those things from my dad. I got to be the man of the household even more so, and not tyrannical ruler, but I got to be present. I go to all the basketball games. I go to all, even the, you know, the cheerleading, even when my, my wife says, baby, you don't have to go to this. No, I have to go. And that is a pattern, Drew, because I didn't have my dad show up to a basketball game, a football game, a parent night, you know? So I started to realize like, bro, yeah, you do have for good, bad, whatever. You do have these, these issues. And I never knew that. Until I opened up at Hoffman during the process and understood that there's a different definition that applies to 
each individual. And I didn't have my definition of what that meant until then. And so what was that like to have a sense of the power of his absence? What happened in your process as you came to understand that the absence of your dad was where the pattern was? What happened for you? You know what? It was it was enlightening. And I brought up the dimmer. That was a light switch for me, bro. It wasn't a dimmer. It was like, bam. And I just was like, oh, my God. Like, I understand this. And it made my writings drew where I'll go back and I'll look at something and I'm looking and I'm like, dude, who wrote this? Because you just flow and you just open. And I, and I, I continue to write to this day. It was one thing, you know, I could sit and say, I didn't know my dad or my dad wasn't there and, you know, big ups and all praises to my mom, so on and so forth. So one of my assignments when I sat to write, it felt like something else took control of my heart, my mind, my body, my soul, my right hand that held the pen. It felt like something else took control because at that moment, when you say, oh, you know, well, my dad wasn't there and not in a, in an angry way. But my dad wasn't there. My dad this, my dad that. And then I started writing and I was like, wow, what if he didn't know that my mom was pregnant with me? Or what if my mom is the one that told him, don't come around anymore? What if those were things that I didn't know and I built up this whole wall around me that no one could penetrate? And I built this fort in his safe zone. But when I put it into his perspective, and not that it was a, a total forgiveness and this, that, and the third, because I, I don't know if I have to forgive him. But I understood at that moment. I understood. So it was very enlightening. It opened up a lot more questions and a lot more homework. And a lot more dialogue. My mom passed in 1999. So I couldn't go to my mom and have a lot of this dialogue about who I am and who the, the family, so on and so forth. So I continue to do this work, you know, and that's why even now I'm like, okay, I'll share a lot, but it's impossible to share it all because I'm still, I'm still learning. I'm trying to, man, I, I'm under construction, you know, still figuring it out. When you say, I still continue to do this work, what does the work look like for you? You referenced writing. I'm imagining you're talking about journaling. Yes, I, I journal. Journal with, you know, in a book. I have an app that journal. I do. I'm, I'm on the Hoffman app. It's constant. And it's not overbearingly constant where it's like, oh, my God. But, you know, there's some days when I got to I gotta attach myself a little bit more. And then there's other days where I can use my extension cord and not tap in as close. But I feel that it's always going to be something, you know, even with, with, with the patterns that I have, Drew, it makes you recognize your patterns even more. And you got to learn how to control your patterns. And by that, I mean, not your patterns go away, but even to the point where I'm like, OK, that's a pattern. All righty. And you can't be the, I can't be paranoid of, of my patterns. I just recognize them and I try my best to work on them. You know, and the one thing that I love about, about Hoffman in the process as well, man, is that 
when I speak about patterns, it's me. I'm not the pattern police. I can't say what's going on with my wife, my kids, my coworkers, my buddies, and so on and so forth. I got a lot of work to do on me. And so I, re- I recognize those patterns. I've saw some new ones. You know, there's some that's not at the surface as much anymore, but I welcome every day, every moment, man. I, I love, I love this work that I'm doing on me. I was talking with a friend of mine today. You know, he's going through some therapy as well. And he was like, man, I wish I would have did this earlier. And I said, no, you don't. It's like now, now you're ready for it. And that's the same way with me. I was ready for it. And now that I found it, I love to continue this work on it. Like the process being at Hoffman, it didn't scare me. You know, a lot of people do have regrets about wishing they had taken the process earlier, if only or having started the work earlier, and yet you're saying the opposite. Can you share more about that? Yeah, you know, I found it when I found it. You know what I'm saying? I, you know, I could sit here and say, oh, I wish I would have got this earlier, but I didn't. <laughs> I didn't get it earlier. I got it at God's timing, my timing, and my will, you know, so I can't sit and say, and then who's to say that if I would have sat with anyone, Five years ago that I would have said, oh, yeah, I need to check that out. I probably would have just heard them out and said, oh, OK, that's fine. I don't know what I would have done. I just know that at that time. That it was the right time for me, sun, moon, stars, whatever that connection was, it was the right time for me. I can't say I've never been, but I try not to be the person that say. You know, oh, I wish I would have did this five years ago. Oh, I wish I would have bought that house 10 years ago. Oh, I wish I would have, because I didn't. And I'm not going to beat myself up because I didn't make a decision that I didn't know about prior. So I'm here, I've ar- I arrived, and I'll, I'll continue my journey. I hear self-compassion in that. Is that an emotion that helps you not look forward or backward, but be more present? Yeah, it, it helps. And and it's it's wild too, Drew, because my mom, like I said, she passed in 1999. My mom was 57 years of age when she passed, right? And I could sit here and say, man, I wish I had more time with my mom. I didn't. Man, I wish I would have went on more vacations with my mom. I didn't. There's so many things that I could say about my mom's death and my mom's life that could either hurt me or ter- take me down, you know, a rabbit hole of emotions. And it's not that it's this thing of I got emotions of steel. I'm a very emotional person. I just know that it doesn't help me to say I wish when I didn't. And there's nothing that I can do about it. I can't. When my mom was sick, Drew, that's when I realized at a certain point, that I I realized what mattered. I realized that it wasn't about the ratings that I get on radio. It wasn't about a biweekly check or signing an autograph or doing a TV show or going to a concert. None of that stuff, because there was nothing that I could do that would have kept my mom alive for another year. I couldn't have paid something and say, hey, make this heart disease and make this you know, stress and her high blood pressure, make all that go away. And here's a million dollars. Couldn't do it. 
You know, there was nothing that I could do. So that made me at at that time, Drew, not knowing the work that that was ahead of me, that made me at that moment understand how precious life is. And then, you know, you still get lessons because when my mom passed, I was still, you know, 500 pounds and it wasn't like my mom passed and and all of a sudden I got my health together. And like I said, it, it was a dimmer as opposed to a light switch. But it opened me up to what was important. And it sounds like when you describe not being able to do anything to help her live longer, there's a there's some surrender in that as well, surrendering to the powerlessness of being able to keep her alive. Right, correctly. So you complete the process, you come down the hill, you head off into life. I'm curious about how this work is living inside you. How is it changing your work, your professional life in radio, but also your relationships? What do you notice, Kurt? Man, Drew, can I tell you something real quick, right? Drew, when I first came off the off the hill, coming out of the uh, Hoffman, not only was I there for the seven days, then, you know, our path to integration are two days after. I couldn't find my voice. And when I say I couldn't find my voice, when I'm on radio, it's like I have a certain octave. Yo, what up, y'all? Big boy, big boy's neighborhood, that kind of thing, right? And that's me. That is me. But when I came off the hill, that seven to nine days was not draining, but it was so beautiful for me that I almost came out and I was like, dude, I don't think I can do this radio thing anymore. You know, I don't need this phone. I don't, you know, and, and you come out and then that's when you think, that's when you know that the real work begins. Because I'm telling you, man, like, Seven days at Hoffman, I could have did a month. You know what I'm saying? But at some point, I had to come out and say, okay, you got to deal with this meeting. You got to deal with this email. You got to deal with this person. You got to be a dad. You got to be a husband. You got to be, you know, a business owner, everything. So how do you make this work in your real world? In the real world that you knew you had to come back to. And so getting home, it was like, man, I thought I went up to Hoffman with a great tool belt. And coming home, it was like I had extra notches to put this tool and so much different ammo and a different screwdriver and a different hammerhead. And and I was I had I came home with so much that I could apply to rebuilding or reintroducing or starting to know who Kurt Alexander is because big boy, I got big boy. I got, I, I got big boy all day. And we had a conversation uh, before drew where I was like, big boy, I, I got it. I know big boy. I know big boy. I needed to know Kurt Alexander. That's who I went to work with and work on and get an understanding when I went to Hoffman. I didn't need someone at Hoffman to tell me how to not tell me, but help me be big boy. Help me know how to take a picture. Help me sign an autograph. Help me turn on a microphone and push my volume up. I know, I know all that, how to carry myself in public as a public figure. I know that. I went to go work on Kurt Alexander. 
And that's who I continue to work on. Big boy, that's my job. That's me. I don't run from it, but I know how to do big boy. I'm knowing how to do this human being called Kurt Alexander. And that's always. As you get to know him, is he younger because you haven't been in contact with him? Or does he feel like an adult? Or what's that process like of becoming intimate with the Kurt underneath Big Boy? You know what's wild? When we talk about like your spiritual self and this, that, and the third, I always see, and I just, I just had this conversation with uh, my buddy Jose when we were driving home. And I told him, I said, man, he said he's doing some work now. And he didn't think I understood. Like, I see myself as a kid and I'm shaking my head like, bro, nodding my head. Like, you don't understand how much I overstand what you're talking about. And so with me, Drew, I'm always between nine and 12. I know my little afro that I had. I know the puffiness in my face for some reason. I'm always between nine and 12 years of age when I think about that. Kurt, what's he feel as he goes through his day? Is he scared? Yeah. And, and you know, I would say like, yeah, scared is, is an emotion. Yeah. I can sit here and say, oh, he's happy. He's jolly. Yeah, he's that. But he's also where are we going to live at tonight? That's a lot. My kids are my son to be 16. And my daughter's 14. They don't, I don't think that they've ever thought, where am I going to live tonight? Where is my next meal coming from? How am I going to get to school tomorrow? Thank God they don't have to think about those things. And Kurt thought about those things every day? Every day, especially when we were homeless. You know what I'm saying? Like going from motel to motel. And it wasn't like we were homeless and here's another pattern of protecting my mom and put my mom on a pedestal. My mom didn't smoke. She didn't drink. She didn't have a drug habit. It's seven kids and you get in this slippery slope. Financially, that's what happened to us. So we had to move into a motel and not a hotel. I'm talking about a motel with probably 300 square feet, if that, you know, because I know what the 450 motel and hotel rooms look like. So this had to be what, 300 square feet, if that, and that's eight people in there. So those were, those are the things that when I think about the younger me and when you ask, was it, was it scary? Yeah, it was, you know, because a child, you think all oh, kids don't think about those things. Kids know. And as I got older, I knew, wow, that was scary for you. It was probably scarier or more hurtful to my mom because she was the adult and she knows the feelings of kids being displaced and not having a home to come home to. But yeah, I remember all that, Drew. I remember walking from school and telling my buddies, oh, I'm about to go this way. Oh, Kurt, you live that way? Yeah. And I'll, I'll cut a different way and they'll walk their way. And then I turn back and run through the alley and go to the motel. And we did have motel friends because families stayed there. But for the better part, a lot of people didn't know that you lived in a motel or that you lived in a place in Santa Monica called the Sunlight Mission in, with, with your family. You know, so you, you knew those kind of things. You know, even at an early age, you knew that you didn't have a home. You know, that's why pattern wise, I, you know, my home is immaculate. 
And I don't mean by size or furniture or this, that, and the other. It's just what we built here where my kids don't have to worry about that. And being the enabler that I am, before I went to the process and even knowing more so, now none of my family have to worry about that because I knew I know what that feels like. And I imagine that feeling, it's a cellular feeling of being homeless. And it just keeps you where at the moment you're living it. And whatever anyone's particular problem, this, that, and the other, those things live with you for life. It could tear you down. It could build you up. It can make you stronger. It can make you weaker. Whatever it is, man, when you have so-called a traumatic experience or just things that's not so beautiful, you hold on to those things. And when I started thinking about patterns, when we were in the motel living, you know, we were in a motel for about a year, our first bout of homelessness. To this day, Drew, if you came to my home, you would look and in my pantry, you'll see paper plates, plastic cups, and we have all the the silverware and all that stuff for real. But what, what I eat out of every day, paper plates, paper forks, red cups, because when we were in the, in the motel, you didn't have plates. You didn't have silverware. You didn't have glasses. That's the way I ate as a probably a 10 year old. And to this day, I still do that. I go to Costco and I buy thousands of forks and spoons. And now that pattern out of convenience, my kids probably think it's convenient. My kids have that now. I've put that pattern on my kids as well and my wife, you know, and it's a convenience probably to them. But I had to tell them where that came from. That's just one other thing. You know, we didn't have when you're in a motel motel, they used to give you these pink soaps and it was these little squares, little rectangle soaps that you couldn't even do one shower with, let alone eight people. And you come to my home now, I have a drawer. You look in there. You'll probably count 100 bars of soap. But that's the pattern from what I didn't have back then. You know, and like when I say things affect you, that is so true. They, they affect you, bro. As you think about your work, I imagine that your conversations with your guests are deeper. Are you more impatient with superficial stuff? Do you dig in quicker, harder, earlier on in the conversation? What's the impact of Hoffman on your radio work? You know, prior to going to Hoffman, we had... um what I felt was great conversations beforehand. But now I feel that there's greater conversations. And not that I came from Hoffman and I have this different understanding. You just have more of a, of a compassion. And I talk for a living, but I listen very well. Sometimes people don't want to you know, somebody going to a story and all I need to do is say, man, ex explain what you mean by that. And then that person goes in even more so. So one thing that I've learned also since Hoffman is it taught me how to listen even more. And what you do with the tone of your voice, looking people in the eye. Not that I didn't have this before, but it made me more conscious of how I receive this person and how this person receives me. 
when you say that how I receive this person and how this person receives me is a is almost like a definition of presence, what it means to be present. Yeah. You just just really in the moment. And and it's wild, man, because even on my end with the whole big boy thing and when we were talking about my book as well, I was like, man, oh, I wrote my book. I wrote my book. And I did write a book, Big Boy and XL Life, staying big at half the size, right? I wanted my kids to read my book. My kids still haven't read my book. You know what I'm saying? They have questions about their dad. And at some point I was like, man, I'm going to have them read my book so these questions could be answered. And as I talk to you today, Drew, now I don't want my kids to read my book. Not that book. The reason why I say that, Drew, is because I wrote my book, but that's not the book. It, it did well and people enjoyed the story because I let them in. I let them in a little bit more than this guy that you heard through your speakers. Oh, I didn't know that about Big Boy. But I felt now that I didn't write the right book. There's nothing I could do about the book that's out. But if I had written that book today with what I've learned about me, and I was still protective when, when I wrote that book. I was still protective. I was still shielding Kurt and writing Big Boy, you know, and, and I let you in, but the layers weren't as removed as they are today. And that was a moment in time. At that time, that's the book I wrote. And, and I'm, and I'm going to tell you the truth too. I knew at some points that I was holding back, but let's do it. Let's, let's, let's put it out. And now that I sit here today, I'm like, man, there's so much more, you know, and not just fast forward because of, you know, Hoffman and the process and being older and, you know, being more vulnerable. It's just, I knew then like, man, you're not writing the book, not even knowing what that meant, but I felt it. Does that feel like you're ready to write another book where you do share those things that maybe where you held back? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm writing it now. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing my notes. How has the process helped you write a more honest book? <sighs> Man, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. I don't know if, it, if it's in words, if it's in percentages. It, it's just, I don't know. If I would have even arrived at saying, because I knew I wanted to write another book, but I don't know if I would have arrived at the book that I'm writing if I didn't go to the process. You know, what I had wrote a fluff book like, oh, you know, my best interviews and, you know, and that'll be in there. You know what I'm saying? Oh, my best interviews. Oh, when I left the station that I was at for 21 years and went to a new station and built this and built that. Like that's big boy. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's, that's big boy. I wrote the big boy book. I got to write the Kurt Alexander book, like for real, for real. Like that's the book that I'm writing right now. People come up to me all the time, Drew, and they say, man, I read your book and it really helped me. Or I listen to your radio show every day and it really helped me. And my radio show has helped a lot of people and it's helped me go through, through a lot as well. It helped me through a lot, but Man, what I give you on the next one, not even trying to sell a book or anything, but I'm giving you more. Or I'm giving you me, you know, and I think that not that the public deserves that. I think I owe that to myself. That's beautiful. I owe it to myself. Yeah. And, you know, and, and even with 
with Big Boy, you know, and, and just briefly, for those that do know or don't know, you know, I was over 500 pounds. I got gastric bypass surgery 20 years ago. And even then I was like, oh, I'm happy in my skin. I could so-called be accommodate being 500 pounds. You know, if I needed a to fly, I could, you know, get a first class bigger seat. If I needed a car, I can get a bigger car to drive in. If I needed a suit, I could have somebody make me one. I can accommodate being this 500 pound guy. And then you just, I just got to a point where I was like, man, you're going to die. You're going to die. And I'm not, you know, I'm not one of those people, oh, I'm nervous, hypochondriac. I'm not none of that, bro. But I felt in my soul that I was going to be dead in a year if I didn't do anything to take over my health. And as I was writing the book, happy, big boy, happy, big boy. But then, you know, you start doing the work and you say, you know what, man, how happy were you? And I can sit here, Drew, and I can tell you I was happy. But how happy were you for real? Now, at my biggest on the scale, I was 511 pounds. And when I got my surgery date, they told me, they said, just lose as much weight as you can. So I'm pretty sure in that little bit of time, I was over 550 pounds. But when I got on the scale, I was 511 pounds. Now, I'm happy. Oh, I'm I'm happy. I'm happy. Now, if there was a button in front of me that said 511 pounds and a button that said 200 pounds, was I so happy that I wouldn't have pushed that 200 pound button? I would have pushed it in a heartbeat. So it made me think about how happy were you? Maybe I was happy. Maybe I'm just happier. I am so grateful for this conversation, Kurt. How do you feel after talking and telling your story? I feel good, bro. You know, I feel good because, like I said, I'm, I'm not talking to the people that's, that's listening, just to the people that's listening. I'm talking to me. You know, I'm talking to me, and it's, and it's not a pep talk. You know, it's a step talk. It's like, man, step up, continue to do what you're doing. So it's good for me. Well, I'm excited to read this new book that comes out whenever it does. I know shame is in there, mingled in there with weight and fear. Was Big Boy a way of managing the shame that Kurt was feeling? You know what? That's a great question because as I'm sitting here, I don't know. Was Big Boy the protector? Was Big Boy the one that, you know, that knew how to smile now? And also, man, like growing up, I'm not the guy that people talked about and, you know, it was fat jokes and this jokes. Like, I'm not that guy. I've never been that guy. I've always been the guy where I protected myself. I wasn't the guy that, you know, you just bullied and, you know, I'll sock you in your mouth, you know, and, and, and I don't mean to sound crazy or anything, but I wasn't that guy. I wasn't the butt of your jokes. I wasn't the one that you would pull my shirt up and expose my stomach and all that stuff. Like I was so-called the coolest fat big guy that you knew. That's why also I didn't have a lot of the so-called problems and issues that other people that was my size would have. And that helps you either hurts or help you get your life together as well. I didn't have that. I was just, I was just cool. I was just cool. But now when, when you start to think of it, big boy did remove or shield you from that shame. It's crazy because I was so-called so good in my skin that 
I didn't even recognize a lot of the shame. If we went out to go eat, I would walk in and I would have to make sure that the chairs didn't have arms on it or that the tables were adjustable, not in in the booth. When I would fly, I would have to fly with a seatbelt extension and then I would have to buy the seat next to me. And I didn't feel a lot of shame in that. But now when I look in the rearview mirror, I didn't feel a lot of the shame, right? But I see that there was shame there. I see now that I wasn't as comfortable as what I thought I was. And now, and not being judgmental, but I see it in other people. I see them and I see through them because I know what it feels and felt like. Like I'll see people, right? And I'll see them celebrating something. And I'm like, okay, that's real. I did that. And now that I'm here, I'm like, I wasn't totally happy. So not putting mine on them, but I'm like, you can't be, you can't be that happy. And maybe it's because I wasn't. There was some shame there of sitting in a chair and just making sure like, is it steady? You know, when I used to go do like live broadcasts, they would have these white flimsy chairs that they would bring out for the air talent. And they had, they knew in the paperwork of when you would pack up the speakers and the turntables and the microphone and promo pictures for big boy, you had to bring a steel or a solid chair for big boy to sit in. Yeah, there's shame in that. How could it not be? You know what I'm saying? Like, how could it not be? I just didn't really trip off of it then. But yeah, definitely so. Did I go home and cry? Nah. But now that I know, yeah. You know, I didn't know that I had an addiction and a love affair with food. How could you be 500 pounds and not know that? (laughs) You know, like, come on, man. Like, how much of an emotional eater are you? Not how, not was. You know, I I would celebrate with a meal. I would have a meeting with a meal. I would be sad with a meal. For every emotion, it was celebrated or it was comforted by food. So, yeah, I continue to work on it, bro. Continue every day. And with the gastric bypass, it doesn't take away the wants, needs, the, the yearning fors and, and things of that nature. I, it took me 10 years until still till today to even just learn nutrition, to learn that that must have been emotional. And I'm still an emotional eater. I know when I have my next lunch meeting and what I'm going to have, I, I, I can recognize those things even more so now. I'm just inspired. Um, and I love what you're saying. It's so honest, Kurt, and real. Thank you for your time. Man, thank you, bro. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.